This is the seventh Sunday after Easter. It is the Sunday after Ascension Day, so it affords the opportunity for me to say something to you about the Ascension and its meaning, and then to say some things to you about what we read in the Epistle and principally in the Gospel today from the High Priestly Prayer and part of the Farewell Discourse that Jesus uh, gives in John's Gospel about his attempting to handle the separation anxiety uh, that may be part now of how the disciples are thinking about what is it that we must do when Jesus is not here any longer? How then must we live? The Feast of the Ascension, or the, the event of the Ascension, is an event widely attested to in the oral tradition that were part, was part of the writing of the Gospels, principally in this case of Luke's Gospel. And the important thing to know is that focusing too carefully on the historical nature of the Ascension as opposed to what it is attempting to say to the community would be a mistake because there's some things here about the nature of our relationship to God in Christ that is being driven home in the account of the Ascension. Father Thomas Keating, who you hear me speak about a great deal, says about the Ascension, the Ascension is not some movement into some geographical location, but into the heart of all creation. In particular, he has penetrated the very depth of our being, our separate self-sense has melted into his divine person, and now we can act under the direct influence of his spirit. So what that means is that rather than think of the ascension as we're thinking of the ascension in this way. Jesus now ascends into heaven and dwells in the hearts of all faithful people and has returned and we will celebrate that return with the descent of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So when we think about the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts, we should think about it not in terms of its invasive qualities, where somehow we believe that the Holy Spirit has gotten hold of us in some way, but the pervasive influence of God's Holy Spirit. And how we do that at the liturgy is what Father Keating again gave us when he discussed during the great 50 days of Easter in his book, uh, The Mystery of Christ, The Liturgy as Spiritual Experience, that each time we come to the Eucharist, we encounter three great theological ideas. The light of God, the life of God, and the love of God. The light of God understood to be the illuminative processes of God that work in each person. And what that means in plain English is that you and I acquire over time and in our life the ability to cope with the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us and we gain some species of practical wisdom about how to do that. And if we pay enough attention, we may get ourselves in a position of being able to commend that wisdom to other people. This is how I have found this to be important 
uh, in some challenge and opportunity that was in front of me in a similar way. Wisdom is, after all, in large part, the accumulated response to both adversity and the positive things that we experience in our life and our ability to understand them as they now come in front of us. So the light of God is always that process. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. The life of God is the empowerment that we receive at our baptism through the reception of the Holy Spirit which permits us always to achieve or to, to yearn for and to strive for some species of excellence and health in our relationships. And it gives us the opportunity to understand that we are able now and empowered always to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us. And the love of God is the process by which we understand that it is possible for each one of us to be transformed. You know, the important thing about living your life in a way that is uh, spiritually mature is to begin the, to understand how it is possible for us to change our behavior. Most of us are the way we are and always will be, but you know what? We can do some things about some things. And when we make that kind of progress, we do enormous good, not only for our own soul, but for being the transparency and reflection of God's grace and love that we're called to be. So the possibility now that we can be transformed is an important thing. No amount of understanding is going to do this. It's your ability to change and be transformed. And it is God's love that is always there for you as a free resource that assists in this process. So in the readings for this morning, principally from the gospel, some questions get raised because there are, there are phrases and words that are used a lot in Christianity and people have all kinds of understanding about what they might mean. What constitutes eternal life? How do we understand the world? And how do we understand our place in the world if we understand or listen to what it says in the biblical witness, principally in the writings of John, that we are of in the world but not of the world? What in the world does that mean? You know? I always think that when we read from John's Gospel, particularly from sections like this High Priestly Prayer, that most of us are only getting about 10% of it, right? I and you and you and me and I and that. After a while you think, I, you know, I'm not so sure where this whole thing is leading. So let's see if we can make some sense out of it anyway. By the way, you may ask, where does he get this stuff? Or when I just read to you what Father Thomas Keating said about the Ascension, where does he get this stuff? Well, you know, Episcopalians believe that the source of authority for us has three locations. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. 
And so Thomas Keating is writing in his books about the great tradition in many ways, the great spiritual tradition that he and others like him have sought to reintroduce to everybody, not just a group of Christian specialists, but the idea that the contemplative life, a life of reflection, the ability to think about your circumstances, the ability of being centered in prayer and having the illuminative processes of God brought to bear on the deep things of Christian faith and life are accessible to everyone. And so when he says what he says about the ascension, he is also relying on the witness of other Christian men and women who have written and spoken about these things through the millennia. So for all we know, we could be hearing a little bit from St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Or we could be hearing from St. Benedict. Or we could be hearing from one of the earlier Christian fathers who talked about the nature of how we understand the mystery of Christ. And how we understand how that mystery dwells in each human person. And how it gets tapped, not by some kind of conscious trying to reach down, but by the drive of our human experience and how in relationship we come to see with greater clarity God's purposes for us. So John is speaking, of course, out of a particular worldview. And here's why I like to read so much from John's Gospel and from the Epistles. This is some of the latest literature in the New Testament. And what that means is that it dates more towards uh, around 100 A.D., 90 to 100 A.D. Well, that's about two generations away from the Christ event, isn't it? So the community, sometimes this community, by the way, is referred to as the community of the beloved disciple. It's a, it's a term that Father Raymond Brown used a lot, one of the great American biblical scholars of the last century, and wrote one of the definitive commentaries on the gospel according to St. John. And he referred to the community out of which this gospel came as the community of the beloved disciple. And how do we understand by virtue of what John is trying to drive home, how Christians just like us came to believe two generations out? And now we're many thousands of generations away, aren't we? And so we now seek to appropriate and make part of our own personal history the deep things of Christian faith and belief. So the community of the beloved disciple understood eternal life in two or three important ways. One was that eternal life is lived now and that those who believe in Christ are living in eternal life now in the world. They understood eternal life in terms of relationship to God and to Christ and to one another and they came to believe as the result those who were the eyewitnesses and saw and heard Jesus' words and works that these words and works were words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God and that the intensity of the relationship that had been established between Jesus and them by learning how to do the same things that he did 
would never go away and in fact would be with them beyond physical death. Now if this is way too much for you, think about people that you have known and loved who have died and have gone to God and the influences they have had on you for good or ill now, in the here and now. And how you are able to access this in some way. And let's think for the purposes of, of the default position that we have about people that we're dwelling now on the affirmative. So those things that we know and have been influenced by those who now have died and gone to God is part of the processes of eternal life. It's how we appropriate what we mean when we say it. You know, my mother has been dead for 35 years, and I think about her every day, and there are things that I wish I could say to her still. Not in some maudlin or terrible grieving sense. Just that the influences of her presence and the way in which she influenced both me and my brother in terms of our future life in very unexpected ways was something that was important. And that relationship hasn't gone away. And it's 35 years later. So the community of the beloved disciple began to say to themselves, you know, this relationship we have with God in Christ goes on forever. And we not only wait for it to happen, this is where so much of Christianity has confused the daylights out of people. You and I aren't waiting for eternal life. We're in the midst of it now. And we're to make a difference now in the midst of this process of intensification of relationship and the coming to know God's purpose for us in big and small ways. So the community of the beloved disciple, we're not speaking of a cloud cuckoo land eternal life but an eternal life that was readily accessible and understandable by that community. The Greek word for world is one you may have heard before, cosmos. That was a television show, remember many years ago called Cosmos? Who was that guy, the astronomer? Carl Sagan, Carl Sagan. billions and billions and billions. Actually, I don't think he ever said that on a TV show. He maybe said it in an interview. Cosmos means world, but in the Greek understanding of the word, it means chaos, coming to order. Now, this might surprise you, but for the Johannine community, the community of the beloved disciple, it was all chaos. Does that mean that they had kind of a blue picture of the way things are? Well, yes and no. What they understood was that they were instruments of the bringing of this chaos into some species of order. And by virtue of this, they understood themselves as individuals and as a community always to stand at some critical distance from the chaotic forces that are continually part of human existence much of which we bring on ourselves. 
It isn't somehow that God has produced a chaotic situation for us now to cope with, but that for some reason... I'll illustrate it by a point. I've been a pastor for a while, and I've had more than one person come to see me and say, you know, my life was going so well, things were just hitting on all eights, I was chilling. And I decided, how can I screw this up? It's just too much. I can't take all this moving from one triumph to the next. How do I throw a monkey wrench into this so that I feel like I'm truly alive? Sometimes I don't think that you and I reckon with the power of perversity as a trait of humanity it may be what we call satanic behavior. How can I monkey wrench this thing and bring a little chaos back into my life? You know, somebody who's trying to make some spiritual and personal emotional progress needs to understand sometimes that uh, we need to have the skills and the internal maturity and ability to respond to the good things that are happening to us as well as the bad things and to be realistic about our life circumstances so that we don't have an overweening sense of how good things are when they maybe aren't and how we need to realign our priorities in a way to live in a more godly fashion. You know, somebody once characterized not dealing with a presenting issue that's right in front of you is like redecorating your house while it's on fire. <laughs> that's not a good plan, is it? You'd be surprised how many people think that's a perfectly reasonable way to think about things. So you and I are in the world and we're to make a difference in the world. You hear me say all the time, you and I should be engaged in laboring to make a society where it is easier for people to be good. To be an influence for good in big and small ways in every aspect of our relational life. And not to participate in the chaotic approach to the way in which we think we have to live. My own opinion about this, by the way, is that part of this chaotic life has to do in our particular age with the fact that everyone is chronically anxious. And chronic anxiety produces a kind of chaotic approach to the way in which things operate in, the, in our politics, in our economic life together, in the religious controversies that beset uh, denominational religion and so on. It's all part of this perpetual uh, and um, chronic anxiety. And the community of the beloved disciples said, you know what, we have a relationship with the Savior that is eternal. We begin to understand our vocation in a deeper and clearer way. And this produces some species of serenity and calm and gives us some tools that we can use to make a difference in the world. So this week, think about how you might be an instrument of God's calming power. See that you have a role to play in big and small ways 
with God's plan for the cosmos. About four years ago, I read an article in the great Jesuit magazine in England called The Tablet. And in the article at the end, when they were talking about what it is that the community of the beloved disciple might understand to be what we're laboring for. And they said, a Christ-centered vision of human wholeness, which is human growth and development towards a model of perfection that is not humanity's own invention. Amen.